0: Take good everyone.
1: Take good. And welcome to this episode of the Yogananda podcast, where we break down the autobiography of a yogi line by line. Now, we for those who've been following, I'm sure you'll you'll know we've uh, departed from chapter four and we are now beginning a new chapter, chapter five, titled "A Perfumed." Saint displays his wonders. So we're pretty excited. We're all pretty pumped about this, uh, the beginning of this chapter. I think we're tra- talking before the podcast started So there's a lot to break down. We're going to try to do our best to break down, go into detail on every line that we'll come across. Now, uh, Priyank, do you want
0: to? Yeah, we're also pretty in? excited because we're starting a new chapter as the four of us, because now we've actually met, three of you met, have met in person. So this may change the dynamic for all those are very mm-hmm. um, detailed and focused in terms of dynamics.
1: Yeah you you say that but I think the thing that you know Lauren and I sort of mentioned a couple of times and my takeaway was that it didn't feel like we were meeting for the first time I know we give each other a big hug and you know had you know had, had a big hug and embrace but it felt like We'd yeah been been friends for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so my my theory, my hypothesis is, is that it probably won't change anything. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know the, the eagle eagle-eyed um, you know observer or mm-hmm. your keen listener might might pick up something. So um, yes, good good point, Prang. Well raised. Uh, so we're going to read for those who do want to read along with us. Um, please feel free to pause the podcast and you can read up to, uh, we're going to try to cover this today, up to, uh, after you leave here today, an unusual experience will come your way. So that's going to be the line that we're going to stop at today. And we're going to cover the um, footnotes and all the material that we can do uh, in the time, uh, roughly, that we have allotted. Um, so do feel free to pause read up to there or listen if you're on the audible book which is excellent by the way i did listen to the whole chapter again just as a refresher on the audible book and it's just fantastic to listen to quite quite short actually even though we're going to cover you know how many minutes are we going to cover on this podcast same chapter um probably 10 times well much more than 10 times um the amount so let's kick off then with the chapter title and expectations uh, as to what we're going to cover in this chapter, um, Perfume Saint displays his wonders. You know, it's a really unique um, title as all the titles in the autobiography are, are unique. But this one sort of stands out as a very intriguing, you know, thought provoking title, Perfume Saint. You know, I, when I first read that, I don't know why it stuck in my mind is or give had such an impression to my mind when I first read it, but um, there's something very playful about it, isn't there, and uh, mysterious. And I think the mysteriousness of it sort of captivates what this chapter represents to, you know, for me. And in this part of the chapter in particular, it is filled with, you know, riddles itself. And, you know, there's a, there's a sadhu or, you know, a rishi that we're going to talk about um, in detail. And he's, you know, full of great insights, but it is very mystical, this part of of the, the book in this, this chapter. Uh, so we're going to have that to look forward to. I'll come to you, Lauren, uh, now.
2: Firstly, I am so excited to be doing this part of the chapter. It's great. Um, but even the title, I realize, has some sort of, not well, even some sort of, it has a lot of depth and also some curiosity, because it says, displays his wonders. And initially, one might think, ah, does that mean the saints' wonders? Or is he talking about God's wonders as his, as it's all capitalized? Oh, yeah. And it uh, raises an interesting question, um, even before we begin the chapter. So, looking having, to delving in.
0: Having read the chapter, do you th- which his do you think is? His... I
2: I feel that it's his as God because nothing can be owned, everything is He. So if it's flowing from, it must be God in Himself. What do you think, Mike?
3: Wouldn't it have to be capital His then if it's His wonders? Yeah, it is capital. It is capital,
2: it is capital His. <clears throat>
3: okay.
2: All that all titles I think in this book. Then we are... know
3: we know the answer. No, no, no. All yeah.
2: words are capitalized in titles in the book. Uh, oh, okay. Ah. so We don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah. Oh but no. We... <laughs> okay. <laughs> we...
3: okay. so mystery is good. Mm-hmm. We we need to, can solve all the riddles. Did.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, it's kind of the theme for this episode. In some ways, um, well, we're going to get into detail. We don't want to reveal too much too soon, as to you know our key takeaways um, for this part of the chapter. But it is um, very fun, um, very fast-moving. Uh, Yogananda really, you know, pulls the reader in extremely quickly. You know, with an amazing first first line that we'll, we'll talk about. But he does uh, talk to a mystical rishi, a, a greedy acquaintance, and then the perfume saint himself so uh yeah we'll, we'll look at the nature of god the complexities of the world and you know the pursuit of his spiritual understanding uh, and much much more so let's let's delve into the first line you know, this is really yogananda seeking guidance in this part of the autobiography of a yogi and the first line really is a quote from the bible uh for from uh ecclesiastes <laughs> ecclesiastes, it right. the, ecclesiastes like the only reason i know how to say that is
0: because our um, insurance provider center was ecclesiastical oh yes
1: ecclesiastical yeah and they, they do churches <laughs> right yeah so the Ecclesi- Ecclesi- ecclesiastes chapter um three verse one of the king james version um, is quoted here in the autobiography of the we know Yogananda is very fond of Uh, studying the bible you know he did it extensively Mm -hmm. which i'd love personally you know he's taking the wisdom that's that's available to him there uh before i go on do you want to jump in
0: yeah and we are taught to uh read the king james bone if we're going to read one then that's the one srf um uh what's the word recommend recommend, yeah well i
2: didn't know that Ah. that
1: Because that's the one simply that Yogananda studied himself. That's the one that he quotes often.
0: No, no, uh, well actually I don't know, but the closest, close, most closely uh, translation is the closest to the actual meaning I think is the I see. summary. Wow. Makes sense,
1: good. Um, so the quote itself says, to every thing there is a season and the time to every purpose under the heaven. Now you could probably just do a whole podcast on that, on that one sentence. But Yogananda simply goes on to say here that um, he didn't have this, you know, this wisdom of, of Solomon, King Solomon. Who, there's a footnote to footnote, um, that we will talk about briefly uh, in a moment, um, and he's essentially trying to captivate here. Um, his this moment in time for Yogananda, where he was searching for his guru. He says that two years had elapsed between the flight with Amar to the, you know toward the Himalayas uh, and the day that he met his own guru, Sri Yukteswar. Uh, and he's insinuating here that with, as we'll, we're going to analyze like what the statement means to everything that there is a season and a time to, to every purpose under the heaven he maybe was a bit impatient. Um, So he wanted to meet his guru. And he says here uh, in this part that he was constantly looking for the face of his guru. And he he gazed searchingly about him uh, on any "Any excursion from home for the face of his his guru. So this was always on his mind. So uh, the insinuation really here from what I gather is that um, patience, knowing that God has a plan, uh, that you want to surrender, there's a purpose to everything, you simply want to observe rather than learn, or, or, and, and learn, sorry, rather than enforce uh, things um, to come before the allotted time that maybe God has has planned for it and it does remind me of one of my favorite sort of sayings which is if you want to make God laugh tell him your plans and so this kind of comes to mind where you know Yogananda is simply really pushing 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 trying to find his guru but it's going to come you know you have to sort of sit back and wait uh, to some extent and that we are not the doers comes to mind here as well that you know God is ultimately the doer uh, and we're We're uh, we're living through through his will um, and his grace. But Brian, can I come to you for comments?
0: Sure. That that first line to everything: there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. It's got a as you say that you could do a podcast about it, but um, it's very poetic and um, very pleasing to the ear, isn't it? And Ecclesiastes. Um, a lot of lot of it is in that same sort of vein, the poetic language that, it's, that it uses and rhymes and things like that. But I really means you you know when you when you read some lines, you may not understand them, but you get this deep feeling of this this has to be a really important line. Um, mm. And you, I, I got that from this line. I still. Remember, and when I reread it for this podcast again, I got that same feeling that I got the first time. But it's quite a a profound line, isn't it? There's 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 tones of like, uh, you know, that everything has a purpose. You know, there's a meaning. There's a meaning to virtually everything in life, and. um, you know, the timing of all of that, that links to kind of like karma and destiny and those kinds of things. But the, it's actually, the, the next line is quite revealing for what this section also means. The next line of Ecclesiastes, which is, um, so the next line is, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. It's just like, could you not, uh, you couldn't get a more, karma centric uh, biblical line, could you, and that in the Old Testament.
1: We're going to touch on Kali in the next part of what we're going to read, and interestingly, her, you know, her role. She had a kind of strong part to play in this cycle of life, Um, uh, and her role, her side role, uh, and what you know she is the symbol of uh, being death and various things. So we're we're going to I don't want to talk about that prematurely but it is so interlinked isn't it and Yogananda does such a good job with you know line after line, paragraph after paragraph just syncing everything together. It's really beautiful isn't, isn't it? Uh, Michael I'll come to you.
3: And yeah, we, we shouldn't forget we're, we're just coming off the back of the last chapter, chapter four where he ran away to the Himalayas and it seemed a bit like this was a venture that I mean he got some out of it he heard a story about a saint but it didn't really fulfill his desire for a guru and then he could have just pulled a saying or figure of speech or something but instead he pulls this really nice quote from the old testament right which is which is very fitting
0: and i'd highly recommend reading the rest of Chapter three, of, book three of uh, Ecclesiastes. It's really, really good, really poetic, and uh, kind of just carries on in that same vein. quite nice.
1: Nice. So we have this very poetic beginning, um, and it's just the preamble for what's to come because, uh, you know, I, I do like my poetry, um, but I find that uh, I think maybe Priyank, you said in the previous episode, like it takes time to read certain poems and, uh, and certain poets writings because you have to just break it down and meditate on each line and I, I almost feel like that's actually what we have in store for us in just this part of <laughs> of um of, of the autobiography of a yogi um and going back to what Yogananda says here he mentions yeah it's been two years since his uh, time that he was trying to Last run to the Himalayas uh, with his friend, his accomplice. Um, but during that time, up until this point, uh, to which um, he's brought us to, he met with a number of sages, and he's done it in this very eloquent way, where he's um, mentioned, uh, you know, the perfume saint that we're going to talk about in this chapter, chapter five, Tiger Swami. That's going to be covered in chapter six. Uh, na- na- Najendra Nath Paduri, also known as the levitating saint, in chapter seven. And then Master Mahasaya that we talked about, or that we will talk about in chapter nine, um, but that was the Sanskrit tutor um, that uh, was previously known as Swami Ke- uh, Kebalananda, um that uh, yeah, we discussed in the previous chapter, chapter four. And then we have in chapter eight, uh, the famous Bengali scientist, um, Jagadis Chandra Bose. So he's covered five chapters there, um, you know, by just mentioning in these two years, he's met all of these people. And there's five chapters in the autobiography of a yogi dedicated to, to these various encounters that he's had. So these two years that he's had are very formative, they're very important to Yogananda. Uh, and therefore, therefore, us and our our study of of Yogananda's life and what it means to us, and the teachings that Yogananda is bringing to us. So, just in that one short paragraph, he's saying, "Hey, you know, I've met all these people people in the last two years, and um, they obviously impacted him very very greatly." So, we'll we'll go into those in more detail in in future chapters, and they're they're all great, aren't they? Every, every single chapter that we have to, to pull apart. Uh, Priyank?
0: yeah, very much. It gives us a teaser for what's to come, especially if you hadn't read the contents and you did not know what the titles of the um, of the part of the chapters were. Especially, you know, the perf- the the tiger swami, for example, <laughs> like what's that going to be about? But um, he, he when he refers to Nagendra Nath Bad- Baduri, he doesn't say levitating saint. He says the name. Interesting. <clears throat> Whereas in the chapter, I think he says, does he not? The actual—that is a levitating saint.
1: Yeah. He um, yes, he right. does
0: the levitating saint, and then in brackets mm-hmm. again the yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So he's he's uh, teasing us here with with his uh, play and how he's structuring um, everything so so uh, uh, beautifully and poetically. Um, Mike.
3: I uh, assume so everyone was most excited to get to the Tiger Swami when you heard this list, right? Because this just sounds like um, an interesting chapter.
0: Um, yeah. yeah, this definitely is going to be next chapter. Um, yeah. I don't know How, how many temp- time episodes going to be for us to get there?
1: Yeah, my, to be honest, mine was the levitating seed. So. I don't know what that says about me, but the Levitating extent that my mind just raced when I first saw that. So um, so yeah, it's uh, there's a lot to look forward to. And he just drops them all uh, very neatly um, into um, uh, into one paragraph here for us uh, that he covered in two years. So it was obviously a very busy couple of years for Yogananda, a very formative form. But first, before we, we move on, we did mention, um, that uh, we have the great uh, King Solomon is referenced by Yogananda here. Uh, maybe, Priyank, you could tell us a little bit more about the great Solomon.
0: Yes, so he's a Jewish king back back then, so the whole of the, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is basically his narrations, so it's essentially his wisdom, and he was He's always portrayed as um, or known as the, you know, the wealthy and the wise and the powerful Um, and not powerful in the sense of um, just, you know, military power or wealth power, because there's a really nice story about him um, amongst uh, in the the Bible, which is like um, in apparently he's he sacrificed um, something to God and God later appeared to him in a dream and asked Solomon what he wanted for in return for that sacrifice what gift and solomon asked for wisdom in order to better rule and guide his people which is a pretty cool thing for a king to ask for as opposed to jewels and more empire and things like that but apparently god then pleased and answered solomon's prayer and gave him great wisdom because he didn't ask for self-serving rewards like long life or death of his enemies <clears throat>
1: yeah worthy 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 of future study you know whenever i heard solomon years ago i always thought it was like um a made-up person because um, solomon like these three you break down the words that i thought it was more of a personification of the sun and the wisdom that the sun brings i wonder if there's any listeners who can shed some light on that for me because i didn't get the chance to do the research into that but if it was indeed a you know a great king is Um, Yogananda himself has said here, you know, in the footnotes, so I do do take that as as gospel. Um, His his wisdom stood the test of time and we're still talking about him today. So um, what a good reference there from from Yogananda to make us aware of. Um, Yogananda then delves into the real um, uh, main aspect of this part of the chapter um, before I go on sorry, drink, do you want to yeah, say the,
0: something more? Yeah, that line where he says um, um, you know, his encounter with the perfume saint has t- had two elements. He said one was harmonious and the other was humorous. Um, mm. Obviously, it's a really good play of reliteration there you know, for, for the reader. <laughs> but we know which one the harmonious was, because we're going to talk about it there. here. But which one was the humorous one? was a humorous one the one where he met that uh, friend or family member that kept talking or was it the the actual perfume saint which he found frustrating probably even funny because of his ridiculous use of you know god given powers i don't know which which, which of these ones do you which of the two do you think he's referring to in terms of humorous well i
1: think what by purpose of el- elimination, you could say that the first one wasn't quite harmonious because he was trying to get away. From, we'll talk about this in a moment, but his friend that he bumps into. No, no,
0: the first, the harmonious one was this, the true saint that has all this profound philosophy. That's definitely, the. I think that's the oh, harmonious right. Sorry, of course. one. So the humorous yeah. one is the one that's uh, debatable, Is w- which are the two, uh, the big speaker or the weird magician? <laughs>
1: Yeah, good point. I don't think he kind of referenced anything as humorous, but I think he did challenge the second one. So I'll mm. go with it.
0: But maybe by the end of this episode, we can come back to that and we see which one. See which one yeah. we think it was.
1: Yeah, it's a good call. Out. I I wasn't sure when I first read that, so I skipped over. <laughs> so yeah, you caught you caught me on that, uh, which is which is good. Um, so here we here we have the main part of this part the uh, of the chapter that we could talk about. Um, And this is the meeting that Yogananda has, this harmonious meeting, as we uh, maybe have just deduced, um, that Yogananda has with a Rishi, uh, a great seer. Uh, And I just thought, wow, isn't this typical, you know, of an avatar coming into this world and he's drawing all of these great experiences towards him. He's meeting these, you know, people uh, of very high enlightenment. And he's able to sort of relay these stories to us. So we get that glimpse into what Yogananda's life was like this, you know, very, very um, synchronous life that he has. So he's standing in front of the temple, uh, Kali temple, and into his ear is, um, I suppose, whispered slightly spoken into his ear quietly is, God is simple, everything else is complex. Do not seek absolute values in the relative world of nature. And that is a line to drop, isn't it? Um, to what was the stranger really, you know, you're gonna end up, He hasn't said that he's met this individual before that we're about to talk about, but that is a line and a half that again, you could probably sit for a long time and meditate on, try to pull lots of knowledge wisdom from. Frank, what's your take on it?
0: Oh, so you haven't um, just whispered random bits of truth like that to people, like in the church <laughs> and things like that? <laughs> do
1: you know, I, I think it's probably beyond me, you know, at the moment to come up with such profound uh, insights, let alone just let alone say one that you
0: don't even <laughs> understand, be like, I think therefore I am, and just like yeah, yeah. walk
1: away. All there is is love, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one day, one day I'll do it for pranks.
3: Oh, I think no, when, I when Guruji is following us through our lives, and he looks at us doing certain things, he probably constantly tries to whisper something to us—some some words of wisdom. We're in tune; we can hear them. Mm.
1: Listen to mm. the voice in the back of the back mm. of the mind.
0: But this line is uh, it hits home for me because I'm a absolute absolutist. <laughs> I, love, I I'd like to deal with absolutes being uh, of the physical sciences background. Um, we deal with absolutes and not probabilities. So um I, you know, and then when everyone anyone ever gives me like a woolly answer, I really, you know, passionately seek the absolute answer, not the maybe, the yes or the no or the one or the zero.
3: I can relate a bit. Um even though I'm not a real engineer, but I know in math, math is so abstract that a lot of things are absolute or seem absolute, at least in math. And then when you apply math on nature, then it becomes physics, right? And physics is already a lot less absolute, especially when you go into quantum physics and there's the few different fields where things happen and we go like, this is not right, but we don't know why it's, why it's the case. And I'm guessing it, the, the whole, our whole life is a bit like quantum physics, right? And if we, if we t- try to use our intellect to find absolutes with it, we will just never find, never be satisfied.
0: Well, Einstein didn't like quantum well, did he? He's like, he used to say, God does not throw dice. <laughs>
2: It's actually really interesting hearing both of you talk about this, because I love how you perceived it. And it just goes to show how everyone takes something different from truth, which is interesting in itself, because truth is absolute, right? But mm-hmm. when, when I read it, to me, it feels like he's saying, do not seek the absolute values, as in the absolute reflection of God and his values in this relative sphere this realm of nature you know like how often do we seek the values and nature of god in in humans for example and we fall short because alas it cannot be so that's kind of how i how i soaked it in that it meant you know do not seek for the absolute god in 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 nature in this reality um but like Mm. you say it's it's um so multifaceted, isn't it? Makes you wonder, you could really delve into this for a long time.
3: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think you're probably quite right there, actually, Lauren, um, that's roughly what I took from it as well. And there's a quote that I want to read out separately for Jorgen Adna, you talked about it, but um, just in what Prink and Mike said, Prink, that's, pro- that's probably why we get on so well, Prink, is that chalk and cheese attracts, you know, it's kind of goes together and probably the opposite. <laughs> I like these you know, abstract and slightly non-committal um, yeah realities that uh, you know it's a little bit more artistic as opposed to the to the raw mathematical you know um, conclusions of things, uh, let's say, that you can draw. Lauren.
2: Mm. And there's so many lessons in this chapter, isn't there? And I feel like this this first sort of section, even this one line is a whole lesson in itself. You know, God is simple everything else is complex like that that alone is an instruction isn't it you know how how often do we get lost in the complexities of life when really we should just focus on the simplicity of of god
3: mike that kind of um is, is a really good point to bring it back to that because i guess our soul is looking for certain things in life and just can't find it, right? It's looking for perfect love. It's looking for perfect values. And the only place where it will be satisfied is in God and no, nowhere else, right? Yes. Saktamondo, that's part of the quote from Yogananda. So you've
1: been doing your reading, Mike. It's it's just coming, coming out of you uh, <laughs> all these years of studying what Yogananda says, part and parcel. Um, but yeah that's 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 it and um yogananda himself i thought responded uh pretty pretty well um but he did say that uh he recognized the truth what this sadhu was saying but before we get on to that he did say something quite funny here i wondered how do you spot a sadhu can anybody answer if you were walking down the street could you spot a sadhu um at first glance well yogananda describes this, uh, comfort, he said, he confronted, uh, turning Turning, he confronted the tall man whose garb or lack of it revealed him a wandering sadhu. So he's saying that therein that he could identify the man as a sadhu because uh, there was a lack of garb. I wonder just how so much of a lack. But um, they've been known to even have no garb at all, some of them, um, that do... Uh, that Roman in, in India. I don't know if, is that a bit bit of an issue actually, you know, not with the modern way of living that, you know, it's maybe certain like indecent exposure. I don't think you could get away with that in the UK, um, but it's maybe accepted in some, some parts of India maybe still. But uh, certainly, uh, Yogananda here with a bit of humour sort of throws that in. Um, and he says really that he was his thoughts were bewildered, and he said that the Rishi had penetrated his thoughts, um, and he, he smiled. So the two of them immediately struck a good chord with each other, um, and he, Yogananda described his confusion uh, of benign and terrible aspects of nature, symbolized by Kali, whose temple they were standing in front of had puzzled him. Uh, and had maybe puzzled wiser heads than his, is how he put it. And I thought that was actually really, you know, one very um, full of humility really from Yogananda and Avatar, somebody with great insight, was standing there sort of perplexed, bewildered, you know, confused, puzzled, you know, he's using these these terms, this language to describe his own musings as he sort of looked looked there and gazed upon Kali. Maybe that's a good time now to talk about Kali and what she represented in um, the uh, the figure. But Priyanka, I'll come to you first if you have any comments.
0: Yeah, so you guys have probably seen the image of Kali, pretty ferocious forearms and standing on Shiva. And we'll talk about that a bit later. But I was just wondering, does, does that image of uh, Divine Mother in that ferocious way or in the forearmed way, Produced, et cetera, uh, or in in the temple, the Dakshineshwar temple, like black black stone is the um, um, te- uh, is the statue made from. Um, does that actually is anyone attracted to that form?
3: I I feel like now I am, but I remember when I saw it for the first time. Actually, the first time I traveled to India in two thousand seven. I my background knowledge wasn't that great, and when I I knew of Kali, I know Guruji talked about Kali many times, and um, then when I saw the actual statue, I was like, this can't be right. This is this is very strange, and I remember that I had this impression, and it it stuck with me, and it's only over time that you, actually understood what. Um, uh, I don't know, it became more normal to me. I guess that's, that's kind and of, I, I, I ended up when I first saw it, I, I did not, because I grew up Christian. So for me, Divine Mother was always like uh, Mother Mary or something like this. And it was just so, so different from that. I guess that's why.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good addition there, Mike. It's perspective, isn't it? You know, I think if I show my, my own mother, Callie, she was probably recall, you know, she's a Roman Catholic and has many different saints, and none of them <laughs> really would have that uh, element in that aspect. You know, there's a, that death and destruction that sort of comes with uh, the imagery of, of Cali with blood-soaked hands and weaponry and things like that. It's a very stark image. Uh, and when you grow up with the Western sort of culture of Christianity, it's shocking. And I think the mind, well, not necessarily mind, but, uh, the mind of a typical Christian, I think, would jump to lots of conclusions and none of them all that positive, I think, looking at something like this, that, you know, you're worshipping all sorts of, you know, gods, whereas uh, the monotheistic idea of Christianity is very stark contrasting it. So, um, no, I'm, I'm very much used to it myself. But it wouldn't be something to answer your question, that I would be immediately drawn to. But again, I'm probably programmed in lots of different ways.
0: Indeed, that's part of the value of India, actually, because God isn't um, put into this absolute box of, um, you know, someone who looks like Jesus or Virgin Mary. You know, you can just just, they're just normal in the sense that you 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 can relate to them because you have a mother that may look like Virgin Mary, you have a father or grandfather (laughs) that may look like Christ, Um, but there's there's other gods obviously in India which are equally. Strange to behold. Uh, one of them is um, is uh, Hanuman, which is the the elephant god. <laughs> Sorry, not the elephant god, the, the monkey god. And the other one is Ganesh or Ganpati, which is the elephant-headed god. Another one is uh, Narasimha, which is um is elephant is a lion face and body of a human. So these are very strange um, uh, forms of god. Uh, or uh, d- d- depictions of God, and you know Mukunda here says, you know, he's he's bewildered by it, and he's a child of an Indian, you know, origin. So you know me myself, and he shouldn't be bewildered by it. But I, to this day, I am bewildered by it. But it's, it's all in this um, line, isn't it? God is simple; everything else is complex. Don't seek absolute values in the relative world of nature, and India's really encapsulate that. So they don't put, they don't fit God into this box of, you know, blue eyes and <laughs> long wavy hair and an attractive, attractive face. I mean, we do have that obviously, but we also have these other forms, which are much much more difficult to comprehend because God isn't comprehensible, right? Um, and, you know, you guys uh, may not uh, find that form attractive, but there are many people that do find it attractive. I mean, the, 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 the lion-faced God that I mentioned, uh, Narasimha, Bhagwan. Uh, he's one of the incarnations of Vishnu. And one of the, uh, I saw a documentary about this one devotee that he, that's the only form of divinity that he aspires to so he's like he's gone out and become a um, uh, archaeologist and he's trying to find the ancient temples of uh, Nusimha and he's like the only one because so few people are interested in this specific sub-genre in Hinduism but he's just out there you know digging on, on hills and mountains of where he was supposed to have uh, had his uh, pastimes.
1: You know when one... I had the great fortune of staying with you, Priyank, for a few nights. It was lovely, and you've got a great, you know, little library of books there, mm-hmm. um, you know, on yoga and various things. Um, and one of them I was that I was reading uh, did talk about Kelly and the story of Kelly. Uh, so yeah, you, you might you might be able to recall uh, and recount this better than I can. But in it, it was saying that you know, in the beginning. Death was not uh, created so that there was an overpopulation on, on, you know, on planets or on the universe. And as such, you know, at the time there was a lot of suffering and uh, it continues obviously. But to alleviate the um, overpopulation issue, Kali was given the responsibility to for death. So she reluctantly had to accept. And Shiva, I think, stepped into to do something to sort of persuade her to, to sort of take up this role. I think that that was some, somewhat of the backstory, which I find fascinating, you know, um, to, to to read. It was the first time I've come across any, anything like that before.
0: Yeah, the 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 pastimes and the, you know, the history of the stories of Kali are very diverse. Um, <laughs> so one of, she's supposed to be, a personification of parvati as well so she's actually the wife of shiva but in a different different guy different guys because um, shiva uh, gave her little tasks to do uh, to you know uh, fight demons and things like that and to, to do that she would take on a different form a more ferocious form and and then exemplify that ferocity and that that's actually one of the reasons so if you look at the gali temple um Gali in that that Guruji is standing in front of in this section. He's um she's she's got her right foot on Shiva. Um and she's like two two of her arms are clean and like you know, uh, they're worshipful and like gestures. And the other hands are like bloody with weapons and you know the head of a demon. So like complete, like complete contradiction. It's like in India, you you would we wouldn't think of putting your foot on a book. Um, let alone a god such as Shiva, and this is her husband. So the, the story is that um to, to defeat this um demon, she had to become so ferocious that she she, she lost control of herself and she was just destroying everything in her path um after destroying this this demon. And um Vishnu, Vishnu got in, you know, he 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 tried to get involved, but he he sees that she's basically destroying the whole universe. So even I'm not going to be able to pull her out of this. So he stepped aside. And Shiva, being a bit, uh, used a bit more intelligence because perhaps he knew his wife a bit better than Vishnu did. Uh, he, he thought the only way I can um, get her out of this state is for her to, to remind her of her actual, uh, you know, what, her, what she actually is. So, she, so he, he lay down on the ground before her and then. And then in India, as I say, it's, it's putting your foot on someone is just like sacrilege, and especially if it's your husband or God. So he he lay down in front of her, and then she went to destroy him by putting her foot on him. And this is the exact image of the kali, the temple that we that we see, and the the personifications of Shiva lying there as if as if dead, but he's actually lying there to try and remind her of her stature. So as soon as she put her foot on Shiva. And she remembered, oh my God, this is my husband. What am I doing? This is sacrilege. And then she came back to her senses. Um, and the other, like the other things, like she's holding a weapon. So, and she's bloody. So one of the one of the um, demons uh, that she was destroying, um, he was so powerful that uh, he pra- practiced tantra such that um, if he could, be, he was basically invincible. And uh, this goes a bit like a bit, a bit, a bit similar to Greek mythology. He was invincible. And what happened was, if someone destroyed him, he, if a drop of blood would fall on the soil, then he would then take up another form. And then he would then go, but go on living in another form. So, what Gali did was basically tore into his basically t- killed him, but didn't let a single drop of his blood into, go on the ground. So, basically, sucked in his blood. And this is why you see a bloody um, version of Kali. Uh, so there's all these like various um, um, you know, stories, but the, the Tantric interpretation is that uh, like Shiva is like consciousness and Kali is like the energy. Um, and Kali and Kala is, uh, is to do with, it's like a, a homonym, which is, is two, you know, one word for many different meanings. So Kala means time. <laughs> Gala also means darkness, Uh, so there's there's many um, interpretations of that, but uh, Gali is also the Mm. energy, Um, so she's the energy and Shiva is the consciousness, consciousness can't exist without energy and hence they're like these two, um, you know, yin and the yang as it were and they're dependent on each other, hence um, Shiva depends on Shakti or Bhavati and and vice versa. Awesome, yeah, it
1: is, as I said at the beginning of this, episode there's so much in here that you could pull apart um and really just talk about for for a long time but um in uh the interest of, of moving on <laughs> um we'll look at the uh at the next part and you know as i as i mentioned so Jurgen Anders sharing his you know Puzzled sort of nature um, at uh, observing Kali and sitting there in, in his thought himself. And we have this Rishi who's come up and dropped some truth bombs and talking about God is simple, everything else is complex. And the two of them struck up this conversation. So here we have the response uh, by the Rishi, the first response by the Rishi uh, to Yogananda's um, response himself. And he said, uh, that there are really few who would solve the, um, the mystery of Cali. And he says that good and evil is the challenging riddle which life places sphinx like before every intelligence. And it's funny, really, he says about riddle, you know, that Cali in the footnote said to, um, uh, wasn't it, uh, to DeVar uh those who wouldn't be able to solve her, her riddles oh no that's forgive me that's the sphinx that's, that's the, the sphinx, sphinx, sphinx itself yes. sorry yeah thank you very much for the clarification so the sphinx um was a you know fabulous monster of Greek mythology that uh, was represented by you know the head of a woman the body of a lion or a dog and the, the wings of a of a bird um and that this creature would uh, propose a riddle to all passers-by and that um uh, anybody who did not answer was devoured by this by, by this creature. So that's the Greek mythology for you there. So there we have uh, the Rishi um, you know using you know it's it's just pure linguistics, isn't it? Um, beautiful, uh beautifully put together. Um, and saying here that good and evil is the challenging riddle which uh, uh, places you know before every intelligence uh, sphinx- like a challenge. And I just thought, wow, this is, this is really something that uh, struck a chord with me because aren't we in this world of duality constantly battling between, you know, making sense of the world and understanding our place within it? Uh, and, it uh, and it can get very, very complex. And to, to the Rishi's point, is God is simple. Put your mind to God and then every, everything else sort of melts away. Um, but I thought, okay, uh, this is definitely something we can unpack. Uh, to to a greater, greater extent um, and he goes on to say then that uh, men forfeit their lives um, uh, often you know uh, from what I understand it, trying to figure out the riddles of life um, without making any progress and that um, that uh, the tiring lo- lonely figures uh, never cries defeat and that he's referencing you know these great spiritual, Uh, figures that we are very lucky to have in our SRF lineage um, that uh, these individuals would never cry defeated and and pursue truth and pursue God over all else and all the complexities of life Um, that the duality of Maya uh, plucks as he says the clevelessness cleveless Truth of unity. So he just dropped so many beautifully strung together sentences and, 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 tr- and bits of truth first to pick apart here. But I'll, I'll come to sort of reactions uh, first. Priyank, do
0: you want to make a comment? The, the when 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 he said attempting no solution, most men pay pay forfeit with their lives. <clears throat> um, penalty now, even as in the days of Thebes, I, I I interpreted that as. It's like you know how the majority of the population just gives in to the whim, everyday whims of likes and dislikes mm-hmm. and the the world and looseory world of Maya, so they forfeit their lives in that, um, and hence, like everything that's worthwhile, you kind of lost because you've already invested you've gone all in on this pretty shallow hand with low chip count. <laughs>
3: yeah i mean i think we we actually have pretty high chip count and we forfeit anyways because maya is convincing us to do so right and i think that that might be what he is describing that um even people who are starting to look for god because they feel like this is this they want to they're ready to not be in the world anymore, they're ready to move on from it. But then they go, they start this endeavor, and then at some point Maya finds a way to get them back in. And I think when he says that there is few who are um, never cry defeat, then those are the people who just keep on keeping on.
1: I thought to myself, is this one of life's greatest challenges? You know, the greatest mysteries maybe challenging, you know, this riddle of life, you know, this balance between good and evil, understanding this and overcoming this duality, overcoming evil. Um, There's a great um, quote that Paramahansa wrote in the Bhagavad Gita uh, that we can get to. But before we do, Priyank, I'll I'll come to you.
0: Yeah, I just just want to touch on the towering, figure's line. So he, he says, the saint, or the rishi says, here and there, a towering, lonely figure never cries defeat. So in my mind, this is, he's describing uh, essentially an avatar. So this is, he's probably describing Mukunda here <laughs> in front of him. So, you know, this towering, lonely figure. So avatars obviously so few, they kind of almost stand alone. and uh, They never cried defeat, and hence the tower above um, you know, as an example for us to follow and perhaps seek guidance and support as we do.
1: Mm. Yeah, I did think whenever I read that, you know, the, the road to mastery of the world of Maya is a lonely one, you know, and I thought actually it doesn't need to be. And then, you know, Yogananda's standing there saying, you know, stand strong amongst the crashing of breaking worlds and these things. But then we have the self-realization fellowship and the key word is fellowship and i kind of thought that's actually quite quite nice that is there sure you know cutting his way through for the rest of us to then follow so um uh yes yeah, he it may have been a very lonely path and it may be for each individual at times i'm sure we all have our own uh, sacrifices and things that we make along the spiritual path but then we have yogananda and the gurus to thank for the fellowship that we all have in the self-realization fellowship so i thought i thought it was it was nice to note that um yes he probably is talking to yogananda directly there in the rishi but then yogananda has gone on and created this fellowship and he's talked about that being being very important in, in the spiritual path keeping good company so we do not need to be lonely is the conclusion i drew from that thanks to yogananda and, and the likes um, but the Bhagavad Gita, then uh, just moving moving on to this, um, back to the topic, sorry, of good and evil. Um, there is a section in the Bhagavad Gita uh, on the commentary by Yogananda, super, you know, super good read. Um, chapter five, verse 15. Um, it's a bit of a long chapter. Uh, there's a part of you know, why evil is necessary and inherently part of God's creation. Uh, so if anybody does want to jump in and read it it's towards the back end of the chapter it's probably easier to go from chapter 16 and go backwards but um i thought i'd you know uh, read 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 out this part um hopefully give us a better understanding of why god does actually commit evil um because it is something that uh, i think a lot of us grapple with so lauren maybe would you kind enough to kick us off
2: lovely it says Good and evil must ever be complements on this earth. Everything created must bear some guise of imperfection. How else could God, the sole perfection, fragment his one consciousness into forms of creation, distinguishable from himself? There can be no images of light without contrasting shadows.
3: And Mike, would you be
1: kind enough to read on?
3: Unless evil had been created, man would not know the opposite. Good. Night brings out the bright contrast of day. Sorrow teaches us the desirability of joy. Though evil must come, woe to him by whom it comes.
0: He who is enticed by delusion to play the villain's part must suffer the villain's sad karmic state while the hero receives the hallowed reward of his virtue knowing this truth we must shun evil becoming good we ultimately rise to god's high state beyond both good and evil
1: yeah so yeah that's uh, some of the commentary on the bhagavad-gita from yogananda and there is a whole other section that we could go into um of god of uh Danta's take on on evil good and evil and why it exists and how it came about you know this battle that we all go under and of course the bhagavad-gita itself is you know this battle uh, that arjuna is leading um at the time so we know that we must do battle with it but ultimately it's all part of the delusion isn't it all part of maya uh, and i like that bit that we can rise above it eventually um, and have unity with god alone yeah
0: and obviously this goes back evil and maya are kind of linked oh mm-hmm. actually both of them god good and evil you have to transcend both uh mm-hmm. transcend to transcend maya um, and then become liberated which brings us to the Guruji's footnote on on maya here which he quotes uh uh msn again do you want to talk about that chris or... <laughs>
1: No, crack on. That's yeah. <laughs> where we um,
0: go. Yeah, it's really. This is this is one of Emerson's poems that um, I can read easily. Shall we say <laughs> it's uh, pretty easy to digest? It's like it's got a lot of um, up, rhyming couplets in in each of the two lines, which I liked, like impenetrable and innumerable, and never fail and veil on veil and believed and deceived. So it's all, the dualities are all there in the poem, but it's very nice, uh, the explanation of, of Maya.
1: Mm. Yeah, um, and shall we read it out or is it? Yeah, ordinary... you can read it out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Illusion works impenetrable, weaving webs innumerable. Her gay pictures never fail, crowd each other veil on veil. Charmer who will be believed. Man who thirsts to be deceived. Um, so yeah, wise words, isn't it? Um wise, wise words. Why and are
0: we so thirsty to be
1: deceived, Chris? It's it is a question break. <laughs> I do not have the answer for as yet. <laughs> One day.
0: Stop um, trying to quench your thirst of deception.
1: Exactly. Exactly, yeah. Funny, that's actually high. I described you know when I first got into the lessons was a thirst of quenched like a, a, my, my thirst was quenched actually when I got the lessons and started reading the the text of Yogananda and the autobiography of a yogi and it's funny funny that actually because it's the great deception isn't it that it, the evil evil promises to quench the thirst and that's why I think people keep going to it and going to it and going to it, but actually does the opposite it it makes you even thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. And that's that's the great deception, isn't it? Um, And then eventually when you do drink from, you know, true wisdom that Yogananda and others sort of give us, it's like, wow, like, geez, you know, it's floored me when I first caught it. So thanks thanks to the SRF gurus for that one. Um, So Yogananda then turns to, uh, and, you know, after this great, Sort of speech that I gave, and he said, "You know, you speak with conviction, sir." So Yogananda I presume that's really, you know, his, his agreement with with what uh, the Rishi said. But at very least, he obviously was moved by how the Rishi said it. Um, so we we move on then uh, to the, what uh, the Rishi then said to Yogananda next, and it's very very insightful. Uh, the few paragraphs that we have to read here. Um, really are the Rishi expressing that through self-scrutinary actions uh, and relentless observance of one's thought, you can uh, shatter the ego. He says it pulverizes the stoutist ego. And it just reminded me of Sri Yukteswar. And the the relationship that Yogananda had with Sri Yukteswar was one that at times was very tough on Yogananda, uh, that he really was having his um, uh, mind just dissected, and his ego dissected by, by Sri Yukteswar. He was the avatar of, of wisdom himself. Um, and here is Yogananda before he meets his guru, before he meets this avatar of wisdom, Sri Yukteswar is having some lessons given to him um, in in the same vein.
3: Mike? Funny that you, uh, mentioned Sri Yukteswar in this context because I always thought that like when you do introspection yourself you are the soul and in, in theory you're the soul trying to analyze all your tendencies and you're trying to pick apart soul and ego right in the <laughs> and then f- try to find out where things come from and it's difficult at some time at some point sometimes, and then when you have someone like Sri Teshwar giving you feedback, that must greatly help doing introspection, right, because you immediately know what you have to look for, right?
2: I'd also love to read out if you don't mind what he said in fullness here. Um, I feel like it's really instructive for us. So he said, I have long exercised an honest introspection. The exquisitely painful approach to wisdom, self-scrutiny, relentless observance of one's thoughts, is a stark and shattering experience. And I feel like that's that is, like I say, so instructive. And and it's it's that pointer to ourselves. You know, how are we relentlessly observing ourselves? Are we relentlessly introspecting? Are we relentlessly shattering this? Created human self till we become become nothing. You know, it's easy to go about our lives and um, be blinded to this this humanness that we need to dissolve. So, right there, we have it. You know, relentlessly introspect and and make changes, and um, this will pulverize a stoutest ego, and uh, one may become a seer.
0: It's good that you guys mentioned Sri Yukteswar because the way he's speaking, it could be one of the Sri Yukteswar chapters, couldn't it? Mm-hmm. The way his um, phraseology is is like um,
2: uh,
0: his his no, he doesn't hide behind nice words. He just says it pretty much as it is, bruising <laughs> to the ego treatment. He used to, Kuriji called it, and not um, he? And uh, he. I I just wanted to pick up on the first line where it says uh, the honest introspection, which he says is the exquisitely painful approach to wisdom. Um, Why, one wonders, would um, introspection be painful? Lauren?
2: I can answer this one. (laughs) when we honestly introspect we face the parts of ourselves our, our created self that really is painful and that the ego and the mind does not want to see but it's only then we can face it for what it is and overcome and make changes um and i i can really feel the truth in what he's saying here yes it's painful but also it's worth it you know how how else will we be who we are actually are unless we learn to go through that that painful fire approach of wisdom uh, through intuition and uh, self-analysis so.
1: yeah
3: i agree with what lauren just said i i feel whenever there is a delta between who we think we are and what we actually are the ego constructs a persona of ourselves or a mask and i think in introspection we have to pull the mask off to deconstruct those personas and see things how they really are and that's i don't i think it's just painful while you're doing it that once you're done with it and you release it it's all good again so I I don't think you create like a perm like it's sometimes it sounds like oh you create all this pain but actually you don't you just you, de- you make it simple and um, and af- after you released all this um, uh, all those charades then afterwards you feel much better than before.
0: Uh, I must not be doing it very well then, because I don't feel much pain when I introspect.
2: Dig <laughs> <laughs> a little deeper, Priyank. <laughs> Everything's hunky dory. I, <laughs> uh,
3: I think pain might not be the goal of introspection either. So yeah, maybe, no. maybe it's not always painful. Uh.
1: The sheer fact that the word pulverized is used there. It's not very it doesn't sound pleasant, does it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it Sounds like wow. There's a, there's a real amount of let's say force required to take apart something that's um, obviously quite uh, yeah resolute in, in in trying to remain as it is. Uh, I just looked up what does the word pulverized mean. I think you know I I would know, but it's reducing to dust or powder, powder, pounding or grinding, demolish or crush completely. And just. Thought then that maybe it's this idea of going back to spirit as it as it were to you know the the gross form of matter like this idea of something um, takes shape but then actually going back to our more ethereal nature of spirit is something something came to mind there um, so maybe it's a bit bit softer in my understanding than pulverized and <laughs> you know which is a bit harsher but, I you say
2: that but it's it, it is it is a death in in a sense isn't it yeah. truly it, it is so whole variety feels quite <laughs> apt
1: the death of the little self let, let's read the part of the bhagavad-gita chapter six verses five to six there's a couple it's not not too long but maybe priyank um you could read uh, what yogananda really talks about when he talks about the little the self of the ego versus the self of the, the soul
0: let man uplift the self ego by the self let the self not be self-degraded cast down indeed the self is its own friend and the self is its own enemy for him whose self ego has been conquered by the self soul the self is the friend of the self but verily the self behaves inimically as an enemy towards the self that is not subdued.
3: When the physical ego, the active consciousness has become spiritualized and united to the soul, it is able to keep the intelligence, mind, and senses under control, guided by the discriminative wisdom of the soul, i.e. the self-ego has been conquered by the self-soul. Then the soul is the friend, the guide, and benefactor of the active physical consciousness. But if the lower ego self has not been thus controlled and persists in keeping the consciousness matter bent, then the soul is the enemy of the ego. Nice, because
1: I, when I was reading it, I, this part of the autobiography of a yogi, I kind of thought. Gosh, this is quite harsh, isn't it? You know, pulverizing the, the ego and you know, per, per, per ego. Um, and there's trying not to have too much sympathy uh, or sympathy for it. Yeah. But uh, this encapsulated what I was sort of intuitively feeling. You know, in Yogananda covers so many topics, and this is one that he covers really well. And if it was a bit confusing to listen to it because it was a lot of self this and self that, it's easier when you read it because you see the. One self of the souls with the capital S, so you can <laughs> understand it a little bit more fluently. Yeah, so, yeah. um, so it's, uh, yeah, uh, encourage you to read that part. Yeah, chapter um, 6, verse 5, 5 and 6. So there we have it. The, the friend, the, the enemy becomes the friend, but remains the enemy if uh, it resists um, the direction of the soul, the, the real self um, that, uh, that we are. Um, so the Rishi then continues, and this bit is so interesting, and again, you know, we could unpack this so, so much, but um, the way of self-expression, he says, that the individual acknowledgments comes with it, results in egotists, um, and that, uh, yeah, they, they have their, uh, their right to interpret God um, in, their, in their own way, their, their private interpretations, as he says. And the universe. Uh, and Yogananda affirms this. He, he says, you know, truth humbly retires, no doubt, before such arrogant originality. And I thought, wow, saying that in the United States, uh, if, if he was there, um, would be controversial because it's the sort of individual um, uh, identified nation, isn't it? They they'd love individual individuality. And it's something that, is indeed, you know, good in a sense of the United States, but um, I thought that it sort of flies in the face of, of what it, of what the United States sort of pushes for in some some sense. That the arrogant originality—it sounds like quite strong language—that um, it hits hard. Um, that Yogananda is simply put uh, saying that you must break down the originality of the ego. To be able to unify yourself with god um so yeah mincing no words the two of them uh, in this in this conversation lauren
2: and i also feel like when he says before um the way of self-expression individual acknowledgments results in egotists uh, and so on and so forth it's that reminder that we should be acknowledging god at all times as the doer and not ourselves <laughs>
1: yeah yeah exactly easily said
2: easier said than done (laughs) but
1: it's our our sadness isn't
2: it even even when we talk about it there's a kind of duality here because we're saying i have to acknowledge god well if there's an "I" acknowledging god there's no there's no release then of of the ego because we're saying it's me acknowledging no there is there is no I.
1: God, God acknowledging God's self.
2: Indeed. That's, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the two of them are having this great conversation, and the Rishi then continues to say that, you know, man, uh, yeah, is um, uh, lesser, essentially, that um, he uses the words, the repulsive life of countless world delusions, and that, you um, the man struggles on the battlefield um, pale into insignificance here that uh, the man first contends with inner enemies, the demons, the inner demons that man has. Um, and he really says that uh, the omnipresent unresting, pursuing man, even in sleep. Uh, and he uses a beautiful word in uh, the the mass, how do you pronounce it, the, the maismic, I wouldn't Myasmic. say, the
2: miasmic.
1: is it miasmic or not miasmic? miasmic weapons, I, I had to look up that word, what it actually meant, and it's somewhat of an ethereal nature, you know, ghostly smoke uh, nature, that essentially will push, pursue you even through matter, um, that the soldiers of ignorant lust seek to slay us all, um, and he refers to man as thoughtless, um, that they bury, he buries his ideals, surrenders to common fits, uh, that he uh, may seem other than impotent, wooden, ignoramus. So he's really throwing the kitchen sink <laughs> at man here, um, and uh, is very, as he says, um, you know, to be overcome by a harrowing array a ray of light that um, that is. No mortal foes; these that the demons that we face. So he's acknowledging, yes, that um, we're pursued endlessly, man, uh, by by our somewhat ghostly um, pursuers. Um, But uh, he is indeed saying that we are failing in many instances. Priyank, what's your take on this?
0: Yeah. When you guys were talking about the little self, and you know. The I um, just remembered the quote from SRF, when this I shall die, then shall I know who am I? It's quite nice. Um the I in this paragraph, he's you just mentioned it um, that you must contend with your inner enemies. And he describes them as no mortal foes, and they have to be overcome by um, you know. They have to be overcome essentially, and he's, he's essentially saying that the inner enemies are actually greater. That they're the worst uh, of the enemies that you have, the most powerful, um, and you have to be over a you know constantly. You have to constantly battle with them um, to try and uh, gain victory, which is true <laughs> for uh, you know. That's essentially the whole big part of the Bhagavad Gita is the persistent. Fight between yourself and yourself, <laughs> the self versus yourself.
3: We had a we had a nice um, meditation at your place, Priyam, and then at the end, I I um, you asked me to read a random part of Bhagavad Gita, and it was that part where Arjuna doesn't want to fight his cousins, right? He doesn't <laughs> want to fight the Kuru's. But the cruise, they represent the evil tendencies or the bodily ego tendencies right and um some of them are your have been your long-standing allies like the senses for example that you have been using in your life and um and this is this is the whole thing you have that that's also the case here like you have to overcome in the bhagavad-gita it's it's more the language is different it's more and you You kind of kill them or you overcome them, Um, but it's the same thing, really.
0: But here he's describing someone who has given up, essentially. Thoughtless is the man who buries his ideals, surrendering to the common fate. But thankfully, Arjuna did not surrender. He kept on. (laughs) He re-picked up his famous bow and uh, carried on the fight after temporarily losing his way, shall we say, and Krishna then. You know, urging him, cheerleading him on.
1: Mm. In general, he's sort of he's saying that self-analysis is is the path to wisdom. Uh, but how he's saying it is uh, a little harsh that Yogananda makes a comment on, said challenges him. He says, respected sir, you know, have you no sympathy for the bewildered masses? So Yogananda really is taking a step back for a moment to say, you know, hold on. are we being a little unjust in how we're referring to our fellow man? Mm-hmm. Um, before I go into this, Lauren, do you want to jump in?
2: Yes, very quickly. For those of you that need a kind of softer approach to the art of introspection, um, it was very... Um, Gently and simply put in the Bhagavad Gita commentary from Guruji um, where he said the earnest inquiry what did they this is in the first verse what did they is metaphorically the question to be asked by the spiritual aspirant as he reviews daily the events of his own righteous battle from which he seeks the victory of self-realization. Through honest introspection he analyzes the deeds and assesses the strengths of the opposing armies of his good and bad tendencies and that feels a little bit softer and more doable and achievable um, for those who uh, don't quite um, resonate with the firm fire approach um, so yeah i just I'd, I'd share that in case it helps anybody
1: thank you lauren it's uh it is uh, I suppose it has been noted before that Yogananda has a very different approach to somebody like Sri Yukteswarji. Um, but all uh, all, all paths lead to lead to God in the end, with uh, sort of gurus. I think we've talked about before, you know, which gurus would you be more you know drawn to? And I think I even said probably Sri Peshwarji to get these kind of heavy-hitting, you know, blunt truths that might shake me into action, you know, maybe there's um you know some 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 uh, quotes for for it. there's different gurus for for everybody. Yogananda certainly has a very loving um, you know divine mother sort of exudes from from Yogananda, doesn't he, doesn't it? So um, here he is challenging this Rishi, to say, respected sir, you know, have you no sympathy for the bewildered masses. And so the Rishi goes silent and he introspects, which, he was preaching about and he comes out with you know another really impactful uh few sentences which really to summarize it says that um through uh you know the love of an invisible god um that man uh really uh is revealed uh through the Uh, through the brotherhood of man, it is revealed that um, we are all one. So he says that um, this inner research exposes the unity of man and that it inevitably brings compassion for one's fellows. And really, Yogananda agrees with him. He says that um, there's a a blind blind to the healing potencies of the soul, awaiting exploration, uh, which really is quite quite a beautiful statement to say that after you may get over the pure observation of the folly of man, mankind, you go deeper into analysis of, of man and the human minds, analysis of the human minds, and you see that we all have one brotherhood you know one we are one and that inevitably you must have compassion for for yourself so love thyself as Jesus said um which as I said Yogananda agrees with that uh, every sage um or the saints of every age have felt like yourself for the sorrows of the world so in, in in a sense there do you think it's something that we would want to avoid this compassion, because to have compassion, you would have to then see the unity in all minds and all mankind. And then that would be to having to tear your ego away from the identification with this thing that you're maybe criticizing in a sense. So it's, it's the step beyond that you have to go to, uh, which in itself is separation from the ego.
0: Is so that something we could take away from that? Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a very um, lot—a lot to unpack in this paragraph, isn't there? Firstly, the mm-hmm. um, you know the the stalwart kinship that you mentioned. I thought this was a uh, if you read if you read it, I'll just read the whole thing. But in- ingenuity is equal to the maze. Inner research soon exposes a unity of all human minds the stalwart kinship of selfish motive. So it's quite a depressing, Mm -hmm. um, depressing, pressing sentence there, isn't it, in that um, even though we may not accept that, you know, all of humanity is in brotherhood or sisterhood, um, in our quality of selfish motive, (laughs) we're all brothers and sisters. What a depressing state of affairs. But uh, that again, as, as you said, Chris, that, that means that for ones which are, you know, introspect a bit deeper and realize that that is not truth, essentially, being selfish um, being selfless is the truth, um, or divine love, selfless love, um, then, then you realize, then you would have compassion for the, you know, other, the other, the way the other side of the world the other half of the world lives or probably not the other half The majority of the world lives and compassion is really important in in our path because and this comes back to you know the importance of the worldwide worldwide healing service that we partake in and um, i do i do partake in every day because it um, builds on that compassion and also my favorite affirmation about um, developing compassion is um is um what is it as i radiate sympathy and goodwill to others i open the channel for god's love to come to me divine love is a magnet that attracts all blessedness so we have to not just um you know have compassion but we have to like nurture and grow that compassion and guruji has given us affirmations and the prayer service and devotion and meditation to to come to that uh, noble goal
3: i I would say it's i mean you say it's depressing that we that you then find out that we're all together in the same delusion kind of, but it's also kind of the the one thing that you figure out that makes you feel compassion for everybody right because you are um not the only one who is like in the, like kind of trying to find out what truth is everyone is and everyone has to um go through similar t- tests in life and i guess in that sense you um this this whole thing this kinship this brotherhood kind of you you could almost see it like we're in this together and in, um, when you are with other spiritual souls who are seekers, then you kind of feel this a little bit, right? That we're all in this and we're all trying to get out of it slowly. And I think that's a really nice thought.
1: The mm. sadhu does soften, Jürgen described his face as noticeably softened. And he says, only the shallow man loses responsiveness to the woes of others' lives as he sinks into the narrowing suffering of his own. And that really was something that compelled you know, Buddha when he kind of left his own sort of palace. And, and he saw the suffering of others and that compelled him really to go on to this introspective journey that ultimately led him to, to enlightenment. So um, inevitably this is an extremely powerful lesson and um, conversation of why Yogananda is taking t- the time to include this in the autobiography as he's doing, Priyank.
0: Yeah, and his young Mukunda's um, response to this uh, saint Sadhu um, in, in in relating all this was the saints that the saints of every age sir, have felt like yourself the sorrows of the world, and if you really delve deep into that, <laughs> you can you can see the words from God's boatman now. Um, guruji himself comes back again and again doesn't he because for the because he sympathizes for our <clears throat> sorrows and mankind's woes
1: yeah he describes it as universal pity mm. the, the Rishi says um, the one who practices his scalpel self dissection will know an expansion of universal pity wow and it's it's a very profound statement isn't it um that uh that's been given here you know something actually struck me as i was reading these uh the, this part in the chapter i thought to myself well did you get to take note of this you know this is a conversation happening many years before he wrote the autobiography of a yogi and here he is reciting these conversations you know as if they're currently happening as if they're just happened yesterday. And even if they just happened yesterday, how many of us would be able to be able to recite them? What do you imagine to be quite an accurate recitement uh, of, of the conversation? It, you know, we're not talking about any old individual, we're talking about Navadar, an and we can probably jump into the cash records and pull out the you know word for word um, aspect of it. But it struck me as profound in, in and of itself that we're able to relive this conversation with within in the manner
3: that
0: we're doing. That's true and you'll remember that in Guruji's Samadhi poem, one of the lines was, thoughts of all men, past, present and to come are all right there with him in that moment of his Nirvikalpa Samadhi hmm. that he experienced. So uh, yeah, so he can go back in time, just exactly as you're saying in the Akashic records chris and uh, copy and paste yeah. shall we say
1: <laughs> yeah it's a pr- It's yeah
0: with it's... auto with auto translate as well Auto, yeah
1: exactly yeah that's what i thought so we have um the rishi uh saying what universal pity and that um you know releasing of the ego uh is as he says release is given him from the Deafening demands of his ego. It um, goes on to say, Why, Lord, why? You know, by ignoble whips of pain, man drives, man is driven at last into the infinite presence whose beauty alone should lure him. So we've got a quite a clear put uh, statement there that, you know, it's through the whips of pain that um, drives mankind. Into uh, the infinite presence, into, into God's bosom, as it were. Um, but what I've taken from this is that you know, whilst like that is true, that, you know, the beauty alone should be able to lure. To lure. So we don't have to go through the pain, but we do anyway, just because you know we're partaking in Maya endlessly. Um, Priyank?
0: Yeah. Just one line in in the midst of all that gold dust was. Super gold dust in my mind, where mm-hmm. we know he talked about um, you know compassion and humility and then the universal pity. Uh, Guruji then adds in there this lovely line. The love of God flowers on such soil. What a powerful thought. But um, yeah,
2: mm-hmm. the next
0: line about the why Lord Why? <laughs> I can I can certainly remember those same questions at the mere age of 18 i would say um troubling relationships uh, uh, led me to pick up the gita and uh thankfully um uh yeah i went away from emotional turmoil from that uh that day and have them much less frequently now shall we say so yeah i can certainly resonate resonate with that that question and the pain that uh that that causes that question to come about, whether it's emotional or Mm. psychological or physical even.
1: So,
2: Lauren? I can relate to Priyank, yeah. But I also love love this last line where he says, uh, he's talking about the infinite presence, and he says, whose beauty alone should lure him. You know, and, and Guruji talks about that. The the love of God should be the only, the only thing that lures us. Nothing else. Not what we can gain. Not what this human self is selfishly wanting from God. It's it's the it's the love. It's the beauty of 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 Him alone that should draw our hearts. And it's so much instruction in this whole section. It feels like scripture. It really does. And we could delve into this for hours. I feel um, there's so, so much to take away. There's
1: universal truth in a lot of it. And I think um, one, one line just to go back to that I, I did want to dwell on a little bit more was the only the shallow man loses responsiveness to the woes of others' lives uh, and these things in the narrow suffering of his own. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, how often do we fall into that trap? Um, myself, you know, guilty, discharged, um, being being known to do that myself. Um, and it's, I think it's it's a very common common issue. Um, how many times do we lose our patience and compassion, unity with our fellow man, um, even triggered into anger, frustration? You know, dealing dealing with people, it's not not easy. Um, in and of itself. That's why it's a challenge that we all take. Um, and I was doing some search, some searching, and I thought maybe we could read out. Um, There's a talk in a 2004 convocation by brother, uh, again, I don't want to mispronounce it, but-
0: Achalananda.
1: Ach- 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 Yeah, okay, Ach- uh, Achalananda. Um, Mike, would you be kind enough to kick us off and, and read um, what was said there?
3: Dealing with anger, calmness, and patience are the spiritual qualities we must develop, as well as learning to accept unpleasant experiences and not be upset by them. There will always be unpleasant situations caused by other people, so don't become upset or angry. One of the brothers said, it took him eight years to overcome anger. He was always losing it. (laughs) (laughs) He kept praying to master, you have to help me with this. Then the idea came to him to pray for the other individual, to pray for those who were pushing his buttons. When you pray that way, brother said, a very interesting thing happens. You find that you have to give up one or the other. You can't keep feeling bad about them when you pray for them. It may or not or may not affect the other person, but it will change you. Lauren, would you please
2: say, don't become discouraged if the results aren't immediate. Keep on keeping on. And eventually you will see that you don't react as you used to. You will realize that your consciousness has changed. After brother came back from his trip to India, some of the devotees at Lake Shrine told him, you've changed. Brother said that something happened while he was in India which helped him to open up to love and compassion and understanding.
1: No, something that did just occur to me that um, why we cherish the guru, disciple, disciple, you know, guru relationship so much is again, you know, open to conversation, is the devotion or rather the compassion, the yindi that the guru identifies with us and so that we value that so highly because it's not over this just this lifetime it's lifetimes but the compassion and the and the say you know maybe the pity (laughs) as this rishi described as, but that's that's there in the guru for us and it takes us maybe a while to kind of recognize that um, but we, you know, we work on that. But it's already there in the guru. And it's such such a strong bond that love and compassion that lasts lifetimes. That the guru is going to be there to kind of bring us home. Um, so it's maybe what is at the back end of of that relationship that we cherish so much. So therefore, so powerful. So we can look towards the rishis. Response um, uh, that uh, thereafter the conversation sort of stops about these um, these insights into uh, self analysis and unity and compassion. And we have the bricks and mortar uh, comment from the Rishi. So they're the two of them looking upon. Chris, should at we the, do that?
0: I think we should do that in the next uh, episode. We're stretching over 90 minutes now. Do
1: you want to cover it in the next episode? Sure. Yeah. That's um, right. That's absolutely fine. Well, then, with with that part of the uh, chapter done, um, does anybody have anything else to add? Anything else
0: that we was want Quite. To um, cover? Quite re- it was really heavy, wasn't it? <laughs> um, it's probably is really three like prepping us for three for episodes, isn't it? <laughs> Mike? Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's heavy and it came out of nowhere. Like <laughs> he just randomly meets a sadhu and he speaks in poems, really drops some really deep truth on us and that, that make us think a lot.
1: Yeah. We didn't want to do it a disservice by sort of pushing through, through quickly, but we mm. probably pushed through quickly enough. But- um yeah we could we could do multiple episodes on this part alone thorn
2: yeah i just wanted to add something like it might feel heavy but i would also encourage everyone to try and find the lightness in it because Mm. truth does set us free and there is so much truth in here and yes the mind may not be able to comprehend it perhaps right now but you know we can meditate deeply upon these words and realize these truths in our own lives i feel and it won't feel heavy it will feel as, as light as god himself so um yeah just a little, little bit of encouragement for anyone who <laughs> may be feeling weighted down by this um, there's freedom an, in truth
1: take an inspiration from your reading there don't become discouraged keep on keeping on yeah. There you
0: go. I, um, I started words. doing something in this episode actually which is to actually write in the autobiography of a yogi um, so I've started highlighting hey. sections so what I highlighted here and it really helped me follow this is I've just highlighted when Mukunda is speaking and when the saint is speaking because then that literally that splits up everything into nice little three or four chunks so I think I may follow this uh, protocol through the whole book, especially when there's uh, big conversations where they're both giving some insight. Especially, I think that might help for later episodes. Mm. But there's a bit of a sacrilege there because in in India, you're never supposed to scribble on scripture type, scripture type books.
2: Oh dear, no one would like to read my, my Bhagavad Gita then. <laughs> 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 notes of <them> on notes. <laughs> well,
1: with that said, then thanks for joining us today thanks to you all um for your insights and contributions um and we'll start off where we left off um on the next episode to so join us then take it